When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he said, pray in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. He lived that out when moments before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing immediate persecution, he got down on his knees and he said, Father, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but yours be done. And in many respects, that's why we gather here week after week, is to take a moment's pause out of our rhythm, out of our lives, and to come with that spirit of surrender. All the things that we're clinging so tightly to and in this sacred moment say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And that's my hope and my prayer for each of you that are here today, that you can leave here once again reminded, encouraged of what it means to let go and surrender and die to self and trust in the good, pleasing, and perfect will of our Father. That in some way and in some part, our lives would be a reflection of the song that we just sang. And so to that end, let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, we ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, Father, all that we need, all the concerns that we have of needs going unmet. Father, give us what we need. Father, forgive us and help us forgive others. And when we go throughout our week and we're tempted to go to the left or to the right, help us follow after you. And we would not be led into temptation. You would deliver us from evil. And we would stand firmly on the promise that yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. Well, good morning, church. It's so good to see you all here this morning. I'm really excited for the opportunity for us to have a kind of an extended celebration after the service and look forward to giving you more details on that here momentarily. Um, when I got married to my wife, it was the summer of 2004. And after being married for about a year, uh, this little Oklahoma girl and this small town Texas boy loaded up their car, drove halfway across the country and moved to Los Angeles, California. Uh, the reason for the move was that that was where I was going to go to grad school. That's where I was going to be in seminary. Uh, and it was hard. It was hard to leave family and to be that far away. And, and it wasn't necessarily easy. But I would also tell you that those three years were some of the best of, of my life, some of the best of our marriage. Because, to be honest, it's not hard to see what's so fun about that part of our country. Uh, L.A., the, the weather we're experiencing today is like 95% of what you get throughout the year in L.A. It's incredible. And on top of that, I mean, there's so many things to do. You can go to the beach, you can go to the mountains, you can go uh, do all sorts of entertainment sort of things. And so we, we really embraced it. But I would tell you, looking back, probably what really grabbed us the most, especially in those first few months, maybe that first year, was really the intrigue of living in the land of celebrity. And, and we were constantly going about our regular business, whether it was going to the grocery store or running errands or wherever we were, kind of having our eye out, right? Like the head on the swivel looking to see if maybe we would possibly run into a celebrity. It was almost like we were at the zoo and we're just like, maybe we'll see one today, you know, and maybe it'll come out of hiding. And so we're constantly looking. What we discovered, though, 
is that it's a lot more difficult to identify a celebrity in those everyday occurrences, right? When they don't have the red carpet attire and they're just going through their regular lives, you're not always sure if you've actually seen a celebrity. In fact, there's this existing debate within our home between Jennifer and me as to whether or not we actually had one particular sighting. Just to set the stage, we were at Kinko's. Yep, we were at Kinko's. And I don't remember what we were doing, if we were mailing a package or making copies, but we're standing in line when all of a sudden Jennifer says, I think that's Kip behind us. And I was like, looking at her in my mind, I, I was thinking, Kip, Kip, who, who is Kip? And she could see like the puzzled look on my face and she said, Kip from Napoleon Dynamite. And I was like, oh, Kip, yes, I remember him now. And so I did what you do when you think there's a famous person. I didn't just like immediately turn and stare. You know, I did the casual, cool, you know, turn like, like I'm genuinely interested in the rest of what Kinko's looks like. This is a really fascinating store. What's behind me? And so as I'm casually turning, I'm trying to survey the line, and all I see is a scrawny guy with his head down and a hat on. And I'm like, that's not Kip. And she goes, it's Kip. I'm like, how do you know that that's Kip? We have no idea if it really was. She will tell you to this day it was Kip. I'm not so sure. So the point is, those regular occurrences were really kind of hard to validate if you were actually seen as a celebrity. You had to rely more on the entertainment options that were out there. You know, go to Jay Leno, go to the Ellen DeGeneres show. You could go to the, the game shows like going to Price is Right to see Bob Barker. You could go to the local L.A. theater, right? They had a lot of well-known actors and actresses that would do things out there in the off-season when they weren't making movies. And so we were constantly in this mindset of engaging and seeing celebrity. And probably the best exchange or moment that we had actually came at a concert. And, and to be fair, this story, this particular occasion, I guess technically could take place in any city. But the fact that we were already kind of in that aura of trying to find and see celebrities, this one kind of stood out to us. So we, we go to a Coldplay concert. And it was in 2006, it was right after their X and Y album, I think, came out with one of their better songs, Fix You, uh, that was on there. So we were, we were really excited about this. The, they were our favorite band at the time, and so we were pretty amped up. And so we go to this arena in Anaheim, and our seats are towards the back of the arena. And so we're not on the floor, but we're directly in front of the stage. So it's a pretty good distance, and we're kind of in that lower half of that back section. And so we're at the concert. They put on a great show. We're having a lot of fun. And it gets to that obligatory part of every concert where they pretend like the show's over and the crowd's like, yeah, don't, don't stop. You know, keep going. And then they're like, okay, we'll come back. And then they do the encore. So it was kind of this climactic moment. They come back. They start doing the encore. It's another song that we love. And so we're just like having such a blast. And as we're in the middle of singing this song, we look up at the stage and Chris Martin, the lead singer of Coldplay, jumps off the stage and starts running in the crowd. And so we're like, oh my gosh, look at that, that's awesome. He's running, he's like high-fiving people, and he's on a dead sprint. And the more we're watching him run, the more we realize, man, he's running towards our section. And so with like every step, it's like he's getting closer, he's getting closer. And sure enough, he comes to our section, walks up the stairs, and is so close that Jennifer can literally like reach out and does, reaches out and grabs his hand and he proceeds to finish the song right by us. And it was awesome. And to this day, because of that moment, it was probably the best concert I've ever been to in my life. And that is the power of celebrity. Right? Like, what's unique about that story? See, what makes that story stand out, it actually has nothing to do with Chris Martin or Coldplay, does it? 
It's not like I'm up here telling you about some unique skill that he revealed that night that you don't know about, or he performed some original song that nobody's ever heard before. The story's actually not about Chris Martin at all. It's all about us, right? And where we were, right? What gives that story some level of intrigue is what almost every celebrity encounter includes, proximity. The fact that I was close to someone. Right? I mean, that, it, think about it this way. If I were just to tell you, hey, one night when I was in California, Jennifer and I listened to a Coldplay album, you'd be like, that's pretty unremarkable. Even if I told you, well, we went to a concert, you're like, okay, that's slightly more interesting. But the greater the proximity we got to Chris Martin, the story elevated in its entry. Right? That's why autographs have value. It suggests proximity. It was close. I got to be near. It's almost as if the shine of that person's importance uh, was able to somehow drift upon me for just a brief moment. Now, isn't that interesting? Why is it that we are so drawn to that? Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, I don't really care that much about celebrities and pop culture or famous people, but, but we still attach a port importance to a level of different people, don't we? Right? It could be maybe not a, a celebrity in pop culture, but we assign the same level of importance to uh, certain figures in our lives. Could be the boss that we want to get attention for them from at work. Could be a, the cool people, the cool friend group that we want to be associated with. Rich people that we hope we can somehow befriend and maybe benefit from their wealth. And, and maybe it's political in nature. We want to befriend mayors and city council members or whatever it is. And if we can somehow validate a closeness to them, and we are able to somehow gain in that same level of importance. And then we begin to even kind of shift it even further and think, well, what if, what if people saw me as important? What if they were interested in my opinion and wanted to be at my table? So what I'm trying to convey is that I think we all, no matter what, however it manifests itself, have that innate desire to be in close proximity and to gain an importance by knowing someone or becoming someone that has that sort of value in the eyes of others. Now, why is that? Why do we feel that? Why are we drawn to that? That's the question we'll return to later, and it's the question that the parable that we're going to look at today drives to the very heart of. So grab your Bibles. Let's turn to Luke chapter 14. <clears throat> uh, we are going through a series that's focused on the parables of Jesus, and this is really part of a greater I guess, theme to the whole year that you could say. When we started this year and we were considering all the different things that we were facing as a country, as a society, you think about the pandemic, you think about all the different challenges that are facing us in the world, our, our thought was, you know, the only way we can really navigate this is to fix our eyes on Jesus, right? Let's not get distracted by all the chaos and all the concerns and all the fears. Let's just look to Jesus. And we, we kind of set that foundation by referring to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so everything we've done this year when it comes to the sermon series has been driven and intended to keep our eyes focused on Christ. We looked at the many different names and titles that are attributed to Jesus through our season of Lent. We got through spring and summer by looking at the words of Jesus that are offered to the churches in the book of Revelation. And now through the fall, we're going through one of the greatest teaching tools and skills that Jesus offered up was, was to teach through parables. And how this power of story, how his parables truly changed the world. So we've looked at a number of parables already. And with each one, we see that Jesus is able to communicate this very complex truth in a very simplified way. And so let's take a look at two different parables that he offers today. We're going to look at the first one 
here on the beginning. So picking up in chapter 14, starting verse 1, it says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body, and Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. And then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Now when he noticed the, how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. And then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friends, move up to a better place. And then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Let's stop there for a moment. Let's consider this first one. So here's what's interesting about the way that this chapter begins, it starts with this common discussion that Jesus has between himself and the Pharisees on numerous occasions about the Sabbath. And at the center of those exchanges is often this question of, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And this is an ongoing discussion, and once again, Jesus, seeing that they are silent, seeing that they don't know exactly how to answer because they're so entrenched in their traditions, heals on the Sabbath and makes the point. Right? If your child or an ox falls into the well, would you not help them immediately? Like he's, he's showing them the importance of showing that sort of compassion and offering that sort of healing. Now, that being said, today's message is not really about the Sabbath. Right? Even though that's a very important theme and discussion that works its way throughout the narrative of the Gospels, that's not really what we're looking at. But there is one aspect to the first part of this chapter that I want to call your attention to because it sets the scene that's very important. What it says in verse 1 is that Jesus is about to go and eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee. And that word prominent should stand out, right? Because we have numerous interactions with Pharisees, but this is a prominent Pharisee. In fact, that word literally means ruler. So what we know is that this was one of the officials. This is one of the religious leaders and rulers of the Judaic community, probably served on the Sanhedrin, okay? So point being, he was seen to be incredibly important, Tremendous influence, a certain level of power that everybody in the community would have been aware of. If you were going to be at a party or you were going to be at a dinner, this is the house you wanted to be at. Now, I don't know if we can just infuse our word of celebrity into the ancient Judaic context, but you get the idea, right? And so it was in this setting of being a part of this important figure's home where Jesus begins to watch everyone take their seat. And that's what sparks the teaching of the parable. So to understand how this works, in this particular time, you would have a seat of honor, right? Either for the host or the guest, the most distinguished person that was going to be in the room. And then every seat had a diminishing level of importance based on how far away it was from that seat of honor, right? So the, the seat that was closest was the most honorable, and the further away you were from this person, then then the more diminished your honor and importance. And so. Who knows exactly how it's unfolding? Who knows if they're like squabbling and fighting or if they're just having this unspoken ranking of their importance 
as they all begin to take their places. But no doubt, as Jesus sees this unfold, he begins to speak into that. Because he knows that every heart is in some way kind of evaluating their worth, evaluating themselves, their sense of value, and desiring to be more important by being seen in greater proximity to this person that was seen to be so prominent and ruler in that time. Right, and so he gives this parable. Right, and he says, hey, if there's this, this feast or there's this wedding banquet and you're invited, don't seek out the most honorable seat. That would have sounded so counterintuitive to them. Right, don't seek that one out because what can happen? You seek that out, someone more distinguished than you could show up and then the host is going to ask you to move to the lowest place and you're going to find shame in front of everyone. But if you enter into that room and you choose the lowest place, well then the host will come and say, friends, move up and you'll be honored in the presence of everyone. Right? And then he offers this very important phrase that we've heard before and that becomes a very popular refrain of Jesus' teaching, whoever uh, uh, exalts themselves will be humbled, whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. And so what we see with this parable on the very surface is, right, is that Jesus is teaching a way of humility. Right? He, he's teaching a way of surrender. And what's interesting is that he doesn't stop with the guests. Right? He recognizes that this is not just for those who have been invited. This is for the host as well. So he adds this same message but through a slightly different lens by addressing the host. When you are to host a dinner or a luncheon, don't just invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your rich neighbors. Those who you know are going to repay you, go and invite the poor, the broken, the crippled, the lame, the blind, who can't repay you. Then you'll be blessed, and you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Right? And so here's what he's tapping into with the host. Right? Again, we can kind of relate to this, can't we? That if you throw a dinner or a party or a luncheon or whatever it is, you can somehow assume or evaluate your own sense of self-worth by who's going to come. If someone important shows up to your party, it's going to add to your own sense of self-worth and self-exaltation, right? And at the same time, if you invite certain people that you know are going to repay you back, then this is actually not a party that's just for them. It's for you. It's for your benefit, right? And so that's not the sort of generosity that Jesus is desiring. That's not what humility looks like. You don't do this to add to your own sense of self-worth. You don't do this to get your own sort of repayment and reciprocity to, to experience on your own. No, you should truly just give without expecting anything back. He teaches the way of humility, right? It's a constant reminder, and it's something that Jesus models himself time and time again. I did not come to be served, but to serve. And so when he offers this parable, it challenges and gets to the very heart of that impulse that we all carry to find importance by how others see us or our proximity to others that we deem to be important. Right, now, let's return to that question. Why do we desire that so much? Like, what's going on there that that's a way through which we view relationships and that we view this world? So there is a study that was done back in 2013. This was captured in an article in Scientific American that talked about the, the reasons that people are kind of drawn into fame, celebrity, influence, however you wanted to classify it. And there are a lot of different reasons. Sure, sometimes you want to receive that so that you can take care of others. Like your family, you can give them certain things that they repay them for certain things that they've done for you. Sometimes we're motivated because we just want that lifestyle of luxury and opulence. But you know what the number one reason was, according to this study? The number one reason people aspire to those things is so that they can be seen 
and understood and valued. Isn't that interesting? It speaks to one of the most innate human needs. I want to be seen. I want to be known. I want to be understood. I want to be valued. And that makes a lot of sense, especially when we go back to creation, right? Because if you think about the creation account and all the things and, that we see in creation and the refrain that keeps occurring that is good, right? He makes the stars and it's good. He makes the land and it's good. He makes people and it's good. There's one thing that is said is not good. What is it? It's not good to be alone, right? And what you can kind of infer from that declaration is that one of the greatest challenges to the human heart is to find itself in a situation where I feel like I am not seen, I am not understood, I am not known, therefore I'm not valued. And so God says we need to remedy that. He makes woman, and what is the response? She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I now feel like I'm seen and understood and known. This is what we were made to desire. Right? We want to be seen and valued and understood. And so we long for that. And so that's what this taps into. Right? If for some way I can be seen and I can be understood and valued by somebody of importance, then greater my value. And then it can kind of lead us down this path. If I'm not just seen and understood and valued by a few people, but by many, then how much greater my value. And it gives birth to this lust for an audience. And that's where it begins to move on a trajectory that is unhealthy rather than healthy. All right, so that's where it's coming from. That's why we desire it. So now let's reposition it in our context. And let's think about the, the ways that we often try to achieve that sense of self-worth, the ways in which we try to, to find ourselves to be seen and to be understood and valued. And if you really think about it in our context today, we have to consider the role that technology is now playing in the way that we shape and view relationships. And we have to. Like it, it's, it's such a, a natural part now of how we cultivate relationships. It's almost like that is the place where we find our own seat of honor. So on all these different technological platforms, just to validate this for a moment, okay, what we have discovered in our society today is that if you want to achieve a certain level of notoriety or fame or influence or importance, you don't need the movies. You don't need Hollywood. You just need a platform. You can, you can do this on Instagram or YouTube. And so here's the way it's impacting us now. There is a recent study that was done by the Morning Consult just in 2019. They surveyed young adults aged 18 to 38 and an overwhelming majority, 86%, said that they would be open to and desire to be an influencer. A social media influencer. It's like the whole new way of thinking about your future and your career. There's no doubt that this is something that people aspire to. Right? They want that desire because we now have this ability to present ourselves to be seen that we can then evaluate in a quantitative function that is measured by likes and shares and posts and views and all these other things. Now, you may be sitting there going, now, Jeremiah, hold on a second. I'm not really that caught up in social media. I'm not really into all that. That's fine. That many of the future generation, that is where they are. But even still, we're, we are looking so frequently and cultivating our relationships through this lens of technology. It's constantly integrating the way in which we understand relationships. Now, think about the repercussions of this. There's a great quote by Andy Crouch. He's one of my favorite authors. He used to be the, the chief editor of Christianity Today. 
He shared this in an interview, and I'm going to reference to several other things that he and a few others say in this interview. But he talks about the role of media and technology in the way that we're understanding relationships, the way that we have a chance to be seen and known. Okay? And when I say media, we're not talking like mainstream media. We're just talking about like the actual form of technology that we use. Here's what he says. He says, media means middle. It's from the Latin middle. So when you put a device in the middle between people, you distance us from one another. And this is actually the power of media. The more I can control the mediating channel, the less you really know about me. And I can practice at getting so good, whether it's taking 20 selfies and just posting one on Instagram, or doing three takes of this little bit that might end up on the air or just rehearsing offline, the better I get at controlling the media, the more powerful it becomes, the more distant I am from you in reality, and the less you see of the fullness of my life. Okay, so here's the irony that he's pointing out. I want to make sure that we get this, right? We now have this tool that is so alluring because it speaks to this innate desire to be seen and to be known and to be valued. And I can use it, it can actually follow my sense of worth and to see how many people can see me and value me and affirm me. And yet the irony is, is that what it also does is it allows me to keep certain things hidden. Right, I can, I can protect what is actually seen. I can guard what is actually out there. I can curate a life to make myself more pleasing, but what's actually happening in the process, I'm actually becoming less actually known. <laughs> I want to be known but I'm actually not. It's creating distance. It's creating a, a false sense of it. And so what it does is over time as you fall into it, and sure, it gives you a sense of being seen, it gives you a sense of being known, but ultimately, it's a very cheapened version of it that doesn't last. And so again, you may be sitting there going, I don't, I don't fall into the whole technology thing. You still do the same things probably. Right, there are pieces of you that you want to guard against letting other people know. Right, things you want to be keep want to keep hidden. Right, that I don't want people to see my mistakes. I don't want them to see my failures. I don't want them to see my past. I don't, I'm going to keep all these things hidden. The more I keep it hidden, the less I'm actually seen and the less I'm actually known. And so it creates this distance, and that's why we begin to struggle with a society that feels empty, that feels lonely. Like I don't really belong and I don't really have purpose, right? And so the remedy to this, the remedy to this is to actually embrace vulnerability, right? Andy Crouch offers another good quote to kind of bring this home. He says, we know that the way that we are formed is by an inescapable encounter with another person who deeply loves us who is willing to let us be vulnerable in their presence and who is themselves willing to be vulnerable in our presence and who calls us to a renovated life. That's the way anyone changes. And that's what makes Jesus' parable so brilliant, is he's calling us to that vulnerability where we can actually be known. When you choose humility, when you choose a chance to be seen as, as less than, to, to bear openly, this is all my mistakes, these are all my failures, I'll choose the lowest seat. That's when you can actually be seen and known and find your sense of worth, right? And so here's what Jesus does, right? He knows that we need this sense of belonging. He knows that we need to be seen and to be valued. And so what he instructs them to do is because you need this and because everyone needs it, when you walk into a room, don't seek to get it, seek to give it. And that's the shift, 
Because he knows that if that's how you walk into a room, then it will inevitably result in you also finding that value that your soul longs for. So there's a lot of ways that we can describe this, a lot of phrases that kind of capture the spirit of that. There are two that have stuck with me through the course of my life. One is a quote that I've shared with you before, and I honestly can't remember who said it. I went and looked online. I was like, I cannot find who wrote this. So it's not mine. That's all I can tell you. Um, But here's the idea. If you go into the world seeking to find a friend, you'll find a few. Go into the world seeking to be a friend, and you'll find many. Love that idea. That's part of what Jesus is tapping into. Similarly, I had a youth pastor that told us when I was in high school, I loved this. He said, there are two ways to walk into a room. You can walk into a room saying, here I am, or you can walk into a room saying, there you are. This parable was Jesus essentially telling everybody, walk into a room saying, there you are. Embrace that humility, embrace that vulnerability, and that will lead you to actually being seen and valued with the worth that you are looking for. All right, so it's a really powerful opening parable, and this is how the dinner conversation is going, but it's not where it stops. Okay, there's one more parable that I think really ties this together in a very important way for us to consider this morning. He's talking about all this and the importance of where you sit at the table, and all of a sudden this guy chimes in and is like, wouldn't it be great to eat at the table of the kingdom of God? And that prompts another parable. Let's follow again in verse 15. It says, when one of those at the table with him were with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, well, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. So the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. And then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. All right, so let me briefly explain what just took place there. Jesus is obviously referring to this, this feast, this banquet of the Lord's table of the kingdom, right? And, and that is absolutely pointing to kind of the eschatological, the heaven-focused resurrection moment where we all get to be with God at the end and feast at the wedding supper of the Lamb and all the imagery that you see in the scriptures. But it's also not just pointing to a future moment, but a present one. A present reality that everyone that was gathered around Jesus had an opportunity to respond to. This is a moment where Jesus is essentially saying, God has sent me. This invitation exists now. Now is the time for you to respond to the invitation to come and feast at the table of the Messiah. And so a lot of this is about getting those folks to consider what their response is to Christ and the invitation that he presents in that present moment. And so the first thing I want to point out about this parable It's really important. Everyone's invited. Don't miss that. Everyone is invited. So if you're here today and you feel like maybe you haven't been seen by your creator, you've been forgotten, been overlooked, don't allow those thoughts to creep in. He sees you and he invites you dine with him. 
everyone is invited. The question at hand is not who's invited. The question is who will respond. Right? So the, the first group, that's where we find the excuses. And notice they're polite. Please excuse me. And in many respects, they're, they're kind of understandable. Right? The first two have to deal with tending to a field or tending to these oxen that were just purchased. Right? They kind of have this similar theme that there's a certain preoccupation with a material uh, habit or materialism that existed in their lives. Things that they owned, things that they purchased. The third excuse is related to family. Right? Again, a very noble and meaningful thing. But even in this parable, Jesus is somehow implying that, yes, even your commitment to family can be a preoccupation to the point that you miss the invitation that is being offered from me. And so the question we have to ask ourselves when you hear this parable is are we offering any excuses, are we offering excuses to Christ as well? How many times do we hear Christ speak into us and call us and invite us and we say, yeah, but I've, I've got these other things I need to tend to. Right, we're preoccupied with these other things that we think are gonna give us that sense of value, that sense of worth that we so desperately long for. Right? We're preoccupied with material things, the success we can find with our careers, the success we can find with friends and influence, or even our own families. And we're missing the invitation of our Lord. We have to acknowledge that we all go through seasons where even if we're polite, we keep telling him, not right now. And we shift our focus on other things. We have to ask ourselves that question. Am I more preoccupied with the things of this earth or am I consumed with the things of Christ? Right? Now, the other thing that really stands out to, the, to me in this particular parable that I think is so important for us to consider is the way in which Jesus calls us to this invitation. And why then do we so frequently choose the other things? Right? Essentially, when you look at these parables in their entirety, the first one is Jesus saying, here's how you need to view one another, and now here's how you need to view me. Right? Here's how you find your sense of worth and value and purpose and belonging. It's not just how others see you, but understanding how I see you and the life that I've called you to live. Right? And he's presenting that, and the more that you really begin to process it and the more we begin to reflect upon it, we see we kind of have these two paths of how it is that we want to seek to know and be known by others. Right? And there's a great comparison about our temptation to constantly choose the path of the world and to be preoccupied with the things that are going to give us that more shallow sense of belonging that ultimately don't last. Right? There's this quote from Andy Crouch that makes this point that to me provides a really meaningful comparison to drive this home. He says that in the same interview, he, he says, I think about the fact that Teresa, and by that he's referring to Mother Teresa, I think about the fact that Mother Teresa and Princess Diana died in the same week. He said they are like these mirror images of what we want to be as a human being, the two most recognized visible women in the world at the, was said at the time, but utterly different paths to celebrity and utterly different paths to influence. And it's fascinating that almost everybody wanted to be like Diana, but no one can be like Diana. Like we have no shot, zero. Meanwhile, you have Teresa of Calcutta, and anyone can be like her, because all she is is a saint, and anyone can be a saint if they open themselves up to Jesus. We have not lacked for models of godly power. 
We just don't want the suffering that comes with it, the long stretches of anonymity and seeming ineffectiveness, the humiliation of being like your Lord. That part we would really rather not have. So any day I can wake up and say I'm headed down that road and yet I look at some celebrity and I try to imagine how I could get to where they are and I've got no chance and yet every day I'm tempted to divert into some facsimile of the path of celebrity rather than the path of sainthood. Love that. So which path are you trying to walk down? Where are you trying to find your sense of value and worth? Where are you gaining your own sense of importance? Earthly standards or kingdom ones? This is what I love about this particular passage. And if I were to try to encourage us with any one final thought today, it would be this. Right, that at the end of the day, the honor we, we receive from the values of the world doesn't last. But the honor we receive by being seen and known by our creator lasts forever. And so even if it is more difficult to choose that life of humility, to choose that life of surrender, it is there that we truly find the value and the worth that we also desperately need. Right? How are you changed? You're changed by an encounter with someone who's going to love you deeply. It's going to allow you to be vulnerable in their presence and be vulnerable in yours. What we see with Jesus is this incredible incarnation where God takes on flesh and steps into our existence and says, there you are. And he provides that encounter, making himself in the most vulnerable position possible, willing to offer himself on a cross to die for you and for me. And he allows us to be exactly who we are. He sees you for exactly who you are. He sees your mistakes, he sees your successes, he sees your dreams, your ambitions, your failures, your struggles. He sees all of it and he loves you deeply. And what we discover is that if we're truly going to be seen, if we're truly going to be known, if we're truly going to find value, that value comes at the table of our Lord and that table is a table of grace. (laughs) He loves you while you were sinners. And he calls you to come and to feast with him. So that's my hope, is that each of us today would respond to that invitation to embrace this grace that he extends to us so that we can then extend it to others, to embrace this grace that leads us home. We can walk beside our Savior. And find the fullness of what it means to be seen, to be understood, and to be known by our King. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we pray, Father, that each and every one of us that are here today would once again respond to the powerful invitation to come and to follow you. God, give us that courage to choose a life of humility. Help us guard against the impulse to determine that worth by associating ourselves with earthly standards, earthly influence, God. But let us choose the kingdom time and time again. Let us follow in your example to say, not my will, but yours be done. Let us follow in your example to say, I'm not here to be served, but to serve. 
And Father, in so doing, may we discover once again the fullness of your grace and your love. That it is only there that we find our true sense of belonging and our true sense of purpose. God, we love you so much. We pray all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.